Hey, it's nice to see you guys again. Uh, it's real nice. Did y'all show up? Did anybody show up here last Sunday? No? Yeah, you did? Oh. Uh, what about Sunday morning? That's okay if you come on Sunday morning. Uh, so the rule is, just so you know from here on out, if there's no school Monday, we typically, unless for some crazy reason, uh, we typically don't do Crosspoint on Sunday. So, uh, like, if there is school Monday, even if it's like Thanksgiving weekend or something, we'll still have Crosspoint. But if there's no school Monday, right, no Crosspoint. So, j- sorry about that. Apologize. Uh, yeah, it's too late. I know. I'm sorry. Um, well, okay. Uh, yeah, we're, we're still in John. Still in John. So we're in John 12 tonight. Uh, jump over there to John 12. I'm not even there. Sorry, I'm prepared. Um, so, I need to save my spot back here also while y'all are turning. This is my first time to open the Bible ever. So, okay, wonderful. Save that. Come back to that later. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so um, I know it's been a couple weeks. I just want to recap quickly where we've come from uh, so we can sort of know where we're going. We're going to be going over the book of John probably until you graduate. Um, But that's okay. We're going to take it slow, take it piece by piece. I don't want to just rush through it. Um, So we're in John 12. Uh, What has happened up to this point is really quite simple. There's a ton there, but it's really quite simple. I think you can break the book of John down into two pieces. Um, The first half, Jesus is making the point that he is the Messiah. In all that that means and all how that relates to the Old Testament, in this really rich way, he's connecting himself with the God of the Old Testament. He's connecting himself with Yahweh, saying, I am this Yahweh God of the Old Testament. That, that's me. I'm the Messiah that's been spoken of since Moses, since Abraham, since, since Adam and Eve. There has been this foretelling of this Messiah. So the first half of the book is Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah. And the first half of the book closes with a death and a resurrection which is quite nice of John, because the second half of the book will also close with a death and a resurrection. So he just made us a nice little seam there. Um, So if the first half of the book, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, the second half of the book is saying something that's very offensive to the Jewish audience of the day, still even now to the Jewish audience. And what he's saying is the Messiah has come to die, which they could not conceive of that. Uh, I mean, if they read Isaiah a little better, perhaps. But, um, but I can see why, right? They thought the Messiah was coming to do something. They thought the Messiah was coming to restore Israel to national power, independence, and autonomy. Um, and the Messiah is coming to say, I am the Messiah, but sorry, I'm coming to die. And so the second half of the book is just leading up to the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So the second half of the book, starting in, uh, in John 12, is just the week before his death. It's, they call it Passion Week. Passion, uh, Greek word, suffering more. Uh, so it's like the suffering week. So this, from John 12 until, you know, until you graduate, we're going to be looking at a single week of time uh, in the life of Jesus. So that's, that's where we're going. Uh, and then if you, so there was this. Beautiful story uh, that closed the first half of the book with uh, you know, Lazarus dying and Jesus resurrecting Lazarus. 
Lazarus, and Jesus showing I have, I have power over death, which is crazy, but that's what he says, I have power over death. Um, and then like we talked about two weeks ago, uh, Mary comes in, and she's a little crazy, and she's anointing Jesus' feet with oil and wiping it with her hair, and, uh, and we talked about all that that means. Okay, so now we're jumping into this very famous scene that I'm sure y'all have seen before. Um, now, let's jump right in. Let's go. Uh, we're in John 12, 12. Uh, l- let me say this. Sorry. Just saying. Uh, this week is also Passover week. So, not this week like as in today, in, in John, this is Passover week. Don't want to confuse you. I am not sure what the Jewish calendar is currently, but uh, this is Passover week. So, all uh, Jewish males have come to Jerusalem, and a lot of them have brought their family too. It's a huge time. Say millions of Jewish people have flocked Ju- to Jerusalem, um, and... and all of this is taking place in light of, of that feast. Okay, now we can go. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We're going to read a little bit more, but after we explain what has just gone on. If you don't know this, the Bible's weird. Like, if you don't know that, uh, you're, sorry, this is a weird, funny story for me. Um, This story. Okay, so let's just talk about what's going on. So uh, Jesus uh, has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and these people have heard about it, and he's now coming into Jerusalem publicly, which he never did before. He never came publicly. He came to Jerusalem, but he didn't make a public show of it. Um, And so he's coming into Jerusalem, and and this time when he comes in, people take palm branches. So they go, I'm assuming they're climbing trees and cutting down palm branches. Hopefully there's a lot of palm trees because there's a lot of people, um, and then they need their palm branches. And so they're coming to Jesus, and they're waving these palm branches, and then they're laying them down. I'm sure y'all have seen this in some sort of, like, terrible Jesus movie, I'm sure, right? Uh, I don't know. There's one out there that has, uh, who's the guy from Lost? The guy that says brother? Desmond, yeah. That's Desmond in Lost, uh, uh, from Lost, and he's Jesus. Check that one out. Um, but anyway, sorry, so they're waving these palm branches, right? Um so what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? There's something going on there. There's so much loaded in this text. Um, and so I, I just want to walk through it. If you're not really versed in, in like history of first century Judea, you sort of get lost with the palm branches. Uh, but what's going on is these palm branches represented something. And there's a reason that they're saying this line from the Psalms. There's a reason that they're saying, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, right? This is their hope, is that he is this king of Israel. But, so they're waving these palm branches. And what's going on is um, Israel had been under the power of other non-Jewish nations for a really, 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 really long time. They had passed hands. So they're in this really strategic part of the world that's a trade route for all. It still is a strategic part of the world. There's always wars going on there. But since the, the Jews came into existence, they've been under the thumb of like the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, um, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And so they have all these promises in their Old Testament about how they're going to like rule the world. And it just doesn't seem to be panning out for them at all. Um, and so sometimes they get a little bit of freedom, but then somebody else comes along and the Romans run through, and it's like, no, sorry, just kidding, you're not going to be free. Um, they've sort of been under the thumb of all of these nations. They've just passed hands. As, as, as nations rise and fall in the history of the world, the Jews just pass hands. Just, they just pass hands, and they're sort of angry at everybody because they think they're better than everybody else. Um, so... What happened about 150, 160 years before Jesus was this guy named Judas the Hammer. Uh, that's a sweet name. Uh, Judas Maccabee. If you're Catholic and you've read the Maccabees, which is in your Bible and not in ours, super interesting. Um, but it's the story of this guy, Judas the Hammer, and his family. And so uh, the Greeks just control Jerusalem, and there's a very terrible king, Antiochus. And this guy, Judas the Hammer, and his family, they're getting tired of being pushed around a little bit. They lead a revolt and overthrow the Greeks from ruling uh, Israel. Uh, and it's just this awesome time. And from that time on, they even minted coins after that happened with palm branches on them. And from that time forward, a palm branch was a national symbol of Israel. It was the symbol that said, Israel is a nation and we are a powerful nation and we will not be like put under the thumb of other nations. So when they're waving these palm branches, what they're really saying is, Hosanna, that means save us. Like, Hosanna, that means like, come and save us, come and save us, come and save us. And so when, they're, when he's coming into town and they've got these palm branches, what they're saying is like, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. You just raised somebody from the dead. You better be the guy who's coming to get rid of the Romans because that's what you, the, God promised us so long ago. Like, he, palm branches, all of that is in the palm branches, right? You would have never known. Now, whenever you see palm branches, that you're going to say, Hosanna, Jesus is king. I don't know. Maybe not. That'd be weird, Florida. Um, so anyway, that's what they're saying to him. They're not just like, I bet you're hot, Jesus, and <laughs> fanning him off. No, it's like, come and save us. Deliver us from the Romans. You are the king of Israel. You can raise people from the dead. Of course, you can overthrow the Romans. So they wave these palm branches. And then what's Jesus' response? This is hilarious. What? He gets on a small donkey. Okay? He's doing that on purpose. He's saying a couple of things with that. It's obviously not a horse. Like, rulers or advancing armies would come in on a horse. Like, you're going to see this throughout the rise and fall of nations. Like, when Caesar is coming into Rome to literally take Caesar's army and take over Rome, because Caesar wants to rule Rome and he's going to overthrow the Senate, he's coming in on a horse. Like, this is, the horse is the representation of power and, and like, He's going to ride in. And so instead of Jesus mounting on a horse and riding in and leading everybody to take over Jerusalem and overthrow the Romans. No, this guy 
gets on a small donkey. It's, it is ridiculous. It's like, if you've seen Braveheart, it's like William Wallace. Just picture it. It's like William Wallace, and he's got all of his men, and he's riding in front of, like, in front of them on a, on a Shetland pony, and he's like, what is, that, what is that sweet, famous line that he said? They will never take our lives, you know, and they'll never take our freedom. But that was a terrible accent. I'm sorry. But he's riding on this, this and he's like a, on a small donkey. The people that are saying, save us, I think immediately, maybe when they see him far off, they're like, he's coming on a horse. But then when he gets closer, and he's like, it's just, you're like, Jesus, this is not the way to roll into town if you're about to, if you're about to overthrow the Romans. They're pretty crazy. Uh, so, so what's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying two things there. Primarily, he's saying two things. One of them, he's saying, I'm not your political ruler. Well, I don't want to say that. I'm not your political savior. I am not here to fix your political problems. I'm not here about the Romans. This is not about the Romans. I'm not here to do what you want me to do. I know that the Roman occupation is terrible for you. I know that they're oppressive and they take all of your money so they can give it to their army so that their army can occupy your town and oppress you and steal from you and mistreat you. So the Roman occupation was not good for Israel. There was literally an army. The Romans hired Jewish people to take the money of other Jewish people to tax them so they could pay the Roman army to stay in Jerusalem. It's like you're having to pay somebody to oppress you. Deal. That sounds awesome. And Jesus is raising the dead, saying he's the Messiah. I'm the one promised to Adam. I'm the one promised to Moses. I'm the one promised to Abraham. I'm the one promised to David. I am him. I am him. I am the guy that the prophets spoke about. That's me. But I'm not here to do what you think I'm going to do. And so he's riding in on this donkey. And the other thing he's saying, um, and John actually tells us, thank God or we may not have caught it. John tells us, he quotes from the book of Zechariah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion just means inhabitants of Jerusalem. Zion is Jerusalem's also called Zion. Uh, and da- daughter just means the people of. So fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so he's saying something really huge. More than saying what he's not, he's saying what he is. So he's saying, I'm not your political savior. I'm not your political savior. But I am the Messiah from Zechariah 9. And I'm sure all of y'all are like, oh, no, I, I understand now, right? Because y'all know Zechariah 9 so well, right? No? Okay. So that doesn't clear anything up. Um, I want to go to Zechariah 9. I want to read it and uh, I want to talk about that a little bit and really show you what, what's going on in Zechariah 9. Typically when the, Old Te- or the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and they give you a little blip, what they're not saying is, Hey, just check out this little couple verses. They're usually saying, uh, this has something to do with the entire book, or at least some of the major chapters, like 
when he's saying, look at Zechariah, and he's saying, I'm basically the Messiah of Zechariah, I'm the Messiah of Zechariah 9, and so let's look at that real quick. Um, if you can't find it, it's at the end of the Old Testament. I believe it's second, second to last book of the Old Testament. Or you can do this. This is what I do. Right? Just do that. Um, so we're, um, we're going to start in Zechariah 9, 9. Right where John starts. <clears throat> I just, okay, okay. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not even an adult donkey. And then listen. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim is another way of saying Israel. They have like 14 names for Israel. Basically, if you're like, I've never heard that name, probably just, just put Israel in. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse. You see that? The war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule, catch this, his rule is not Jerusalem. His rule shall be from sea to sea. So it's not America either. It's not sea to shining sea. His rule shall be from sea to sea and then from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That was another way the Old Testament talked about this idea of hell and the afterlife. And I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to, you, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. If you, if you read the whole book of Zechariah, it's just all about this. It's all about the Messiah who is just not going to be the king of Israel. What Zechariah is saying, the Messiah of Israel is in fact the king of the world. He's the ruler in the way the New Testament puts it, the ruler of the cosmos, the entire created order. So not just the earth. So when it says ruler of the world, it usually means the, the ruler of the entire created world, the created world, the, the, the cosmos. So what Zechariah is saying and what Jesus is saying is I am indeed the king of Israel, but this is not about the Romans. I am the ruler of this world. So he's saying, again, he's saying two things with that. He's saying, I've come to do two things, right? What, to unite the nations together. Whereas in the Old Testament, God is just the God of the Israelites. He's only come and revealed himself to the Israelites. He's only walking with the Israelites. And he's saying to the Israelites, walk in fellowship with me. Walk with me and be a light to the rest of the world so that the rest of the world will look to the Jews and say, their God is the real God. Their God is in heaven. Let's follow them. But the sad part of the story is the Jews never do that well. And so the Jews just say, our God's the real God and we're better than the rest of you. And we oppress the poor, and they don't follow the law of God. And they oppress the poor, and they mistreat the widows, and there's no social justice. And God comes to them over and over and says, hey, you're supposed to be a light to the world. You're supposed to be a city on a hill, but you're not. And so judgment is coming against you. But after judgment comes, the Messiah will come. After judgment comes, the Messiah will come. And so what Jesus is saying, 
I am that Messiah who's here to do what the Jews never could. I'm here to bring the rest of the world back to their God. I'm here to redeem the rest of the world and bring them back into covenant with their creator. I'm here to unite the world, the way Galatians says, to break down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles so that the people of God will be like they are in Revelation. There will be, t- there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation worshiping before the Lamb because he has come to unite nations together under himself where he will indeed be the ruler of all nations. So that's the first thing he's doing. But there's something even more beautiful and spectacular than that. When he says that he's the king of the world, when Zechariah is talking about him being the king of the world, listen to this, this stuff here. So as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. He starts getting into stuff much deeper than just political rules. So when Jesus says, I'm the king of the world, he's not just saying, I'm not just king of the Jews, I'm king of everybody. He's saying, I'm restoring the right order that was broken at the fall. And so we need to flesh this out a bit because this is where this really intersects with our lives. Something, y'all thought, keep in mind, pretty much every week we're going to go back to Genesis. Pretty much every week. There's so much that happens in those first three chapters, and it pretty much relates to every single thing else in the Bible. So if I don't do it at the beginning, it's probably going to happen in the middle. Just, just be assured of that. So something happened in Genesis when man fell from their original relationship with God. So you're seeing God being perfect and needing nothing and lacking nothing, and because he needs nothing and lacks nothing and exists in this Trinitarian, this, this relationship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this trinity that love each other and um, are perfect within themselves. They need nothing. And so what does a being like that do? A being like that creates so that other beings can enjoy that thing because that relationship is in and of itself so beautiful and whole and filling and good that nothing else can be better than sharing it. He's that loving and that creative, and that's what he does. He creates. He puts these humans in this garden, and he says, make the rest of the world like this garden. You be in relationship with me, and through you, you be the steward of this earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth. Basically, be, you're the image of God. Be the image of God to his creation. Be the reflection of grace. Be the reflection of mercy. Be the reflection of patience. In right relationship with me, you cultivate life. As I have made life, you cultivate life. And you go and do that. And Adam's like, sweet. And then chapter 3 of the first book of the Bible, um, Adam and Eve take the door out. So because God is loving and because God is good, he doesn't create these beings with no way out of relationship with him. He gives them a doorway out of that kind of relationship. And what happens is terrible. So they take the doorway out. They reject that relationship. They reject his voice. They reject his love. They reject God himself. And the way that Genesis puts it is they take from the tree of the knowledge and good evil, good and evil from which they were not supposed to eat, and they eat. They listen to the voice of the serpent instead of the voice of God. 
And God said, if you do that, you will surely die. And so separation from God happens. And I think what we tend to think is that's when God started hating us. Or we think, so we began to sin or something like that. And then thank God for Jesus, here he comes. But we tend to miss all that happened there. When that happened, when we said, no, God, we're going to listen to the voice of the serpent as opposed to your voice, we ceased to be the stewards of this earth in right relationship with him. And we allowed, and this is where the Bible gets weird, the demonic realm. So this is why Ephesians calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. That's why in Ephesians 6, it's like you don't wrestle with flesh and blood. You wrestle with the rulers and powers of darkness in heavenly places. And you're like, why, God, would you put powers of darkness there? Like, what's up with that? The reason is because we were supposed to be the the stewards of this earth. And we traded that. We gave that rulership to someone else. Someone else that is not in right relationship with God. And so what happened is we became powerless. We were supposed to be in right relationship with God and receiving life from him, cultivate life. So we cut ourselves from the source of life. We received what you're going to see in the Bible, the curse of sin and death. It's not just that you sin. It's just that you can't not sin. You are literally under, a, under the curse of sin. You are not in right relationship with your creator. And so you're under this power And as much as you want to be different and be seen different and feel different and look different, you are powerless to become what you want to become. You are powerless to do the things that deep inside you know you want to do. So we became powerless to control ourselves. We became powerless to direct the world the way we were supposed to do, cultivate life. We became powerless to do that, and we let someone else do that, namely the demonic realm. So we have these powers then set against us from Genesis 3. Sucks, right? Sorry. Happy. Good news. If we only look at sin as a bad thing we do and not a power that is against us and set against us, we never find freedom. and We never find hope. And so I think if you're honest, you feel this. If you're honest, you feel this. You feel this power of sin. You feel this powerlessness to become what you want to become, to do what you really want to do. And, and for all of us, it's different, but for all of us, it's the same. Like some of, some of you guys just were like, I know because I talked to you all, you, you have this anger And you don't want to be angry. You don't want anger to be as strong as it is. You don't want to fly off the handle every time your expectations are let down. You don't want to have this anger inside of you to your parents or to your friends or to whoever has let you down the least, I mean the last, whoever the last person was that let you down. You don't want to have this anger in you. You don't want to have this bitterness in you. But you can constantly feel it there and there's nothing you can quite do to get past it except for try to contain it so it doesn't contaminate the rest of your relationships. But it tends to leak out no matter how hard you try. And for some of you, it's not anger. 
for some of you, it's like pornography. And it's like clockwork. Every three days, every four days, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. You do it. You look at it. You feel terrible. And you're like, oh, when are you going to deliver me from this, God? Why do I have this? Like, why can't I get past this? Like, why am I always struggling with this? And you feel guilty for a day. And then you are like, Jesus, you have forgiven me. I rest in that. That's good. And then two days later, you get this urge, and there it is again. And then you feel guilty, and then you're just in this cycle. I mean, it could be materialism. Feel unsatisfied. Feel unsatisfied. Go buy something that fills this sort of weird satisfaction in you. You buy that. You feel, okay, like buy the right clothes, buy the right shoes, look the right way, get my hair done the right way, get my face done up the right way, and I'm going to, like, I'm going to be accepted, people are going to look at me rightly, people are going to accept me rightly, the right guy is going to find me, and life's going to turn around. And so you begin to feel that, okay, this is just a weird sort of cycle I'm on, I don't want to do that, and yet you still can't get past this addiction to materialism, or how many things could it be, this addiction to weed, this addiction to getting drunk every four days, like, because nothing is quite like it, I don't know what it is, but I know <laughs> every single one of you struggles with it. Because I do, because everyone I know does. And so you see what I mean by this powerlessness, this something in you that you can't quite get a grip and get past. And if you just could, life would be great, but you never can quite get there. So the Bible calls that a curse of sin. And so when, and, and the reason that is, is like I was just saying, we cut ourselves off from the source of life. We let, we were supposed to rule this world, and we gave that rulership to the demonic realm. We gave that rulership up. And so now we're slaves to our desires. Ephesians says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walk, following the course of this world, under the prince of the power of the air, gratifying the desires of our flesh. Gratifying the desires of our flesh. Telling the world telling us where to go and the demonic realm controlling the world and the world and where the world tells us to go. Wow. Right? Powerlessness. Powerlessness. So when Jesus rides in on this little donkey, he's saying, I'm coming. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. But I'm not here to get rid of the Romans. I'm here to roll back that curse of sin that oppresses you. I'm here to do away with your powerlessness over your sin. I'm here to do away with your powerlessness under the world and the way the world works and the world telling you how you ought to live, what you ought to do, what you ought to buy, where you ought to go, who you ought to date. You do not have to live under that. You don't have to operate under that. And the demonic realm telling you you suck, telling you you're not good enough, telling you you don't look the right way, telling you you're not smart enough, that you're not going to accomplish the things that you need to accomplish. And so Jesus comes and says, I am the Messiah of Zechariah 9. I am riding in here not to do away with the oppression of the Romans. I'm riding in here to do away with the oppression of sin and death and the devil and the demonic realm. That's what I'm here to do. And he does that by going to a cross. He doesn't do that by riding in on a war horse. He does that by going to the cross. 
And the reason he goes to the cross, the reason he has to go to the cross, is because there's no way to restore that relationship. It's not like God can look at humanity and say, uh, y'all have caused a mess. But it's cool. As long as you say sorry, you can come back to me. It's like, I don't know the best way to put this, it's like, it's like God makes this garden. And he puts you in it. And he says, I want you to, I, I, want, I want to cultivate this garden with you. I want to grow peppers and tomatoes and asparagus and a bunch of different kinds of lettuce and spinach and kale if you like kale. I want to grow these things. And then I want you to feed the people around you with these things. I want to I grow this with you. I want to teach you how this works. I want to grow this garden with you. And then I want you to take the fruit of this garden. I want you to eat it. I want you to be alive because of it. And then I want you to give it to the people around you. I want you to give it to the people around you. And then some guy comes along and he says, you know, we should stop growing uh, tomatoes here. We should start growing poppy seeds so we can make heroin. Or let's grow weed here instead. Or let's grow whatever the plan is that you render to make cocaine. Let's grow that here. You can make a little money. And so you start growing those things instead. You start growing those things, and you give this guy control over the garden. You say, hey, you know how to grow, grow better. You grow it. And you're making a little cash on the side, but it's just spreading death and destruction all around you. So the people you're supposed to give the kale and the tomatoes and the lettuce to, you're now giving very destructive things to. And then in this way, humanity destroys. They were supposed to cultivate life and give life. And instead, they don't just not cultivate life. They literally cultivate death and destruction. And God looks at that and says, you were supposed to bring life. And he says, I want to take this garden back. And I want you to do it the right way. And I want to do it with you. And I want to cultivate things that give life out of this garden. And we're like, cool. And he's like, but we can't just act like none of that stuff ever, ever happened. Somebody's got to pay for all the death you've been dealing. Somebody's got to pay for that. Because God is just. Because he's just. He punishes the wicked. If God doesn't punish the wicked, he's not a good God. And so he says, I do want to cultivate this garden with you. I do want to make life in this garden with you. And so my son is going to take your place. My son's going to take the punishment instead of you. My son's going to die instead of you. So all the death that you've been dealing will be dealt with. But my son, who's perfect, he'll, he'll take it. He wants to, and he will. And he does. So Jesus comes riding in, not dealing with the Romans. Not dealing with the Romans. Sorry. I know the Romans suck, but I'm not here to deal with that. I'm here to give you power over what you really deal with. I'm here to give you power over the anger, over the guilt, over the shame over the addictions, over the lust. I'm here to give you power so that you can again, with your God, walk in life and be alive and cultivate life. That's what he came to do. That's what the cross says. That's what the resurrection says. I'm here to give life. I can restore life. I can do that. I can do that. Walk with me. Believe in me. Trust in me. Follow me. This is what I can do. And this is what I want to do with you. I'll take the punishment. All the guilt that's over your head, I'll take that. So that nobody can say you've done anything. Nothing, nobody can hold anything against you because my son took care of it. 
And that's what he's saying. And that's what he's saying over and over. And so that's why we really can see, like sing that song. There's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, to break every chain, to break every chain, right? To break every chain. But what happens to us? What happens to us is that we accept Jesus. We say, okay, I'll take that forgiveness. But then we're never taught how to stand against what's coming against us. So Galatians 5 says, Galatians 5 says, it's for freedom you were set free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so what happens very simply and very easily is that we say, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. And so you can look at me now and you can sing these songs and you can say, power in the name of Jesus, cool, I see that, I buy that. Yeah, and then you can sing it. But the problem is, is you still have chains on. You still feel the chains. You still feel the powerlessness to do and be what you feel like God is calling you to do and be. And I think most of you, if you're honest with me, you will actually say, yeah, I accepted Jesus at some point, but I don't feel the power you're talking about. I don't feel that sort of sure confidence that all my sins are taken care of and that no guilt can hang on my neck. I don't feel that. I don't quite feel that. I, I think that's quite normal. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. I think there's a couple reasons why we might accept Jesus, believe in the forgiveness of sins thing, but not walk in the power and in the victory and in the life that we're supposed to. I think there's a couple things. I think the one thing that's probably the most common is that you will accept Jesus as Savior over like the sin thing. That's cool. You can take care of all my, all my mistakes, but I still want to do what I want to do. And so you're saying, yeah, you're king of the world. You're just not king of my life. You're just not king of me. And so where there is no submission to the Lord, there will be no freedom. There will be no victory. There will be no life. James 4, 7. Submit to the Lord. Then resist the devil. Then he'll flee from you. You don't submit to the Lord. There is no resistance. And he doesn't flee. And he does whatever he wants with your life because he's still around. So you can have power in Jesus' name but never exercise it. You can have power in Jesus' name but never walk in it because you are not really ready to submit this whole thing to the Lord and say, you guide where this goes. You guide my future. You guide my life. You get to decide who I date and how I date and how far I go with my girlfriend and how far I go with my boyfriend and if I live with him or I don't live with him or how I handle alcohol. You get to decide all of that. I'm your servant. I'm your son. I'll follow you. And when you don't do that, there's no power in the name of Jesus. There's only you submitting yourself to slavery again. That's where that goes. And the second reason that a lot of times we buy into this Jesus thing and we sing the songs, but we don't walk in the power and the freedom that we're called into is because we remove ourselves from the confessing community. And when I say remove yourself from the, confess the confessing community, is that I mean you remove yourself from people who are honest about their struggles and their failures and their pain. And you remove yourself from a community that is constantly saying, hey, I'm broken, but I'm growing, and it's because Jesus has forgiven me and he's empowering this thing. 
If you're not in a community of people that are saying that and acting that way and living that way, but you're in a community of people and the predominant amount of your time is spent in a community of people who are telling you you need to look better to be accepted, you need to perform better to be accepted, you need to say the right things to be accepted. If you're constantly around a community of people that are like that, you will constantly feel like you're never living up and you will not walk in life, you will not walk in power. If you remove yourself from the body, from the church, if you re- and I'm not saying this building, I'm saying a group of believers, a group of people who are honestly saying to themselves, I'm broken and this is hard, but Jesus is taking me through this and I believe in his power to do so. If you remove yourself from that community, there's no life, there's no freedom, there's no vitality, there's no cultivation of life. Submission to the Lord, confessing community. And the third reason is you've never really just been shown how to walk with the Lord. You never come up behind somebody who's older than you, an older man or an older woman, and said, I'll follow you. You show me how you walk with the Lord, and I'll walk with the Lord that way. And I'm going to tell you everything that sucks in my life. And you're going to tell me that Jesus has paid for the whole thing. And you're going to have to do that over and over and over and over. And they're going to be meeting with the Lord when you're not around, and they're going to be praying for you when you're not around, and they're going to be looking for the best things in your life. If you remove yourself from that sort of relationship, have never had a relationship like that, the chance is you probably don't walk in freedom, you probably don't walk in life, you probably don't walk in vitality, and you can sing about power in the name of Jesus, but never walk in the power that is literally right in front of you. All you've got to do is grab it. All you've got to do is come to grips with whatever is going on inside and say, I want to do something different. I want to be somewhere else. I want this to look differently than it does. And I wouldn't bring all this up if I didn't believe that there were tons of older men and older women in this church who want to walk that way with you. I wouldn't bring this up if I didn't believe that there was a community of people that if you come to me, I can plug you into and say, these people love Jesus and walk with Jesus and follow Jesus, and they're really honest about how bad they are too. And they're not going to look at you any different when you spill, when you just spill your guts in front of them. They're just going to say, I love you, I care for you, we can get past this. If I didn't believe those things were right here in front of you, and I'm not saying they're just at this church, I'm not. There's several other churches in this town that have communities and people that want to disciple you. But I'm saying is you've got to get plugged into that or you won't walk in freedom in life. You'll be able to sing about power in the name of Jesus, but you'll never experience power in the name of Jesus. Woo! I'm just going to read the rest of that text real quick, and it'll, it, it just sort of lines up, and it'll show you. Just basically to prove my point, just so you know I didn't make that whole thing up. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. This is, this is John twelve twenty. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. I don't know why John tells us that. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went together. They got some sweet tea on the way, went and told Jesus. And, and Jesus answered them something that has nothing to do 
seemingly with what they're talking about. The, uh, this, I, I'm, we're going to read that. The reason he's talking about the Greeks, the reason that's out of nowhere, is because right before Zechariah 9 is Zechariah 8. You didn't know that, but it's right there. And in Zechariah 8, it says, when the Messiah comes, that people from other nations will come and cling to the robe of a Jewish man and say, show us where your God is. So John's just saying, that's happening. That's happening. Because obviously Greeks are coming to them and grabbing on. And then Philip and Andrew, their buddies, and then they go and tell Jesus. And then this is what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus came to the earth and he died. And when he died, he actually begins to bear fruit. And that fruit is, is you. If it dies, it bears much fruit. And then here, whoever loves his life loses it. So if you can never come to an honest grip that where you are is not right and submit to the Lord and say, hey, wherever you want to take this, I'm down to go. Wherever you want to take this, let's do this. Because I believe you give life. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's just what I'm saying. You can't just accept the forgiveness of the Lord and then go your own way. You accept the forgiveness of the Lord and then you follow him to the death of yourself and to actual life where you can be alive with your Father again where you can cultivate a garden that gives life because he's paid for everything in advance. That's what's offered. That's what's here. I've seen it happen in my life. I've seen it happen in the lives of tons of people around me. It can happen in your life. There can be something different. 